All right, so if you got your Bible, you can go ahead and turn them to the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. The verses we are zooming in tonight on is verses 4 and 5, talking about the Passover. So it says in verse 4, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, as we come to your word, as we open it up, um, God, as we study uh, the festivals that uh, you have ordained in the Old Testament, um, God, we ask that you would uh, open our eyes and hearts and understandings um, to uh, God the the myriad ways that you reference and and uh, work through the theme of Passover throughout the scriptures. God, as we look to the Old Testament, as we look to the New Testament, as we look to your Son Jesus Christ, as we talk about these things, um, God, we ask that you would uh, open our hearts so that we would gain new insight. Um, God, that we would see uh, the beautiful symmetry of of your working salvation out through history. Um, as, as we look at the passages tonight, um, God, that we would, we would, God, remember and, and experience and, and get a grander sense of the great mercy that we have in Jesus Christ through his sacrifice. God, prefigured in the Passover, fulfilled in the cross. Um, and God, that you would, uh, Draw us into deeper uh, wonder and worship um, as we look on these things. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you um, that we can um, go to it, that we can see who you are. We can see what you have done. Uh, we can see what you have called us to. And that, um, God, that we can know you and know ourselves better. Uh, because of, of your revelation to us. God bless the, the, the reading and the, and the preaching of your word this evening. We thank you. We praise you. We ask this in Jesus name. Amen. All right. So, um, we've kind of, uh, probably got, uh, more than we can say tonight, um, in the time that we've got because the Passover is obviously a huge theme in in the scriptures um and and the way that it plays out of all the seven festivals that we're going to talk about over the course of these weeks passover is probably the one that in many ways we are most familiar with i would say um its connections between the old testament story and the fulfillment that comes in jesus christ are explicit in the new testament it's something that i think probably if you have been in church for a little bit of time, you've probably come across verses and sermons and teachings and, and Bible studies and all those kind of things that interact with the connection between the New Testament and the Old Testament Passover. Um, the fact that Jesus was crucified, right, at Passover, 
um, is, is a major point of emphasis in the New Testament. And some of the things that we will talk about today um, and those themes, I hope, are themes that you were already familiar with. It was sort of a, it's, it was a weird thing to, as, to work on this sermon this week because there's, at one level, it's, there are things that seem, uh, obvious to anyone who has been a believer for any amount of time. And yet at the same time, things that we need to continually be reminded of and then new insights of, of connections between things. And so, so we're just going to kind of work through the story in, in a couple of different ways and draw some things out. Um, what I want to talk about kind of as a, as an outline a little bit is, is talk about maybe the first, the history of the Passover and its connection to the historical events that started it. Um, then how Jesus changed the ceremony of the Passover and, and then more completely how he actually fulfilled the sacrifice of the Passover. So go back to the Old Testament story, the original context in which the story of the Passover takes place. It is connected to Israel's slavery in Egypt, and it's connected to the plagues of judgment that were brought against Pharaoh and his people. So you remember the story. Uh, Joseph, the son of Jacob, is sold into slavery by his brothers, but through a series of God's providential trials and blessings ends up rising to what something like we would call the prime minister position in the nation of Egypt. Um, and he is divinely illuminated, maybe we could say, in his leadership um, and recognizes and is, is uh, given a, a prophetic vision of the fact that there is going to be seven years of, of plenty that, that are followed by seven years of, of uh, famine. And so because of his leadership and preparation and all these different things, he not only saves Egypt, but but pretty much the entire eastern Mediterranean world of the time from dying of famine. In the events of those things, Jacob and all of his children, the brothers that sold Joseph into slavery, end up in Egypt. And God blesses them as a people, as a nation. He multiplies them into a huge number of people. And because of that, a new pharaoh arises over the years in in uh, Egypt who does not know Joseph and does not remember the great contributions and literally the salvation that was brought to their nation through um, God through Joseph. And so he in turn enslaves the people of Israel for 400 years out of fear that they will rise up and become a nation that overthrows Egypt. So as a result of living under that harsh uh, oppression and abuse for centuries, it culminates in the people crying out to God, God hearing their cries and sending a deliverer in the person of Moses. So Moses, we all know the story. We know the songs. We had the felt little things in, in Sunday school classes. Moses says, let my people go. Pharaoh refuses. And in turn, that enacts these plagues that are brought on the nation of Egypt. And what we notice is this, when we go back and look at those plagues, the 10 different plagues, um, they're not just random plagues. They're not just random bad things that God enacts on the people of Egypt. Um, at one level, they represent a, a cosmic battle going on between God and his prophet and the gods of Egypt that aren't gods and their representative who is Pharaoh. And so, so what we see is that some commentators have basically said there's the, the, the plagues themselves play a specific 
uh, they represent something specifically. That each plague is actually a an attack or a denunciation of a specific God of Egypt and their specific realm of influence. So, you know, that when the, the Nile is turned to blood, that's an attack on the God of the Nile. And there's one of attack on the God of the field and the God of the herds and all these different things, the God of health in general. And so that, that may be the case. There may be an insight there, but it seems particularly obvious when we come to the last two plagues. The first of which is the plague of darkness that falls on Egypt, but not on the land of Goshen. That is uh, a picture of defeating the sun god, Amun-Ra, who is seen to be the father of the pharaoh, essentially, okay? And so that one seems to be a, a little on the nose, you might say. And then the final plague, the death of the firstborn, is in many ways a specific attack against the deified pharaoh himself. Because what it does is it crushes his line of succession, all right? By killing of the firstborn, it shows that his power and his lineage and the fact that he is supposed to be able to continue his line on and be this, this god emperor, uh, pharaoh, um, that, that, that the one true god has brought that to an end. And there's all kinds of themes that we could talk about just reading the story of, of the plagues and, and the and coming towards the Passover, themes that come to the surface that we could talk about. When you read the verbiage of the passages, all kinds of different things. And we don't have time to zoom in on everything that, that we could talk about there. One particular one or a couple particular ones is it demonstrates, first off, the chosenness of the people of Israel, their unique standing in God's economy. So Exodus 11, right in the heart of the, of the Passover narrative, God says this, he says, I'm doing these things, I'm I'm executing these plagues that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel, all right? And so what we see in each of those plagues is that in general, they are enacted upon Egypt and their things, not on Israel and their things. When Moses encounters God at the burning bush and asks, when this people of yours asks me who what God has sent me, what am I supposed to say to them? And what does he say? He says, tell them that the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent you, right? We've talked about before, that's a big deal. The fact that the infinite God of the universe has named himself in association with three Middle Eastern dudes um, in the ancient world, right? That his name forever is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has made a special place for this people in his dealings with the created world. God has entered into covenant with this people and not other people. And the fact that these plagues fall on Egypt and not on Israel is a demonstration that they are God's chosen people and that just as we find when we get to the book of Romans chapter 9, and he makes a specific reference to the things going on here, what does he say? He says, God will have mercy on whom he has mercy, and he will harden whom he will harden. He has chosen to harden Pharaoh and Egypt in this story, and he has chosen to save and redeem Israel, and that is his will. But here's something interesting, too. They are chosen. Most of the plagues don't befall them, but one of them does. And that's the last plague, the most severe of the plagues. That last plague also falls on Israel, and that demonstrates something. 
The fact that we all owe a debt to God because of our sin. So remember the way the story goes. Um, while the first nine are, again, in general, um, focused on Egypt, and yes, there might be some ways in which they would affect the Israelites, like Nile turning to blood and some things like that would affect everybody in a general way. They are specifically focused on Egypt, but not on Israel. Israel is spared because they're God's chosen people, but they are not spared the 10th plague. God basically says, look, if you don't do what I say in this circumstance, you will suffer the consequences of the 10th plague yourselves. And that is the death of the firstborn of each family. They're not exempt from that just because they are part of his chosen people. And so that reminds us of an important lesson about sin. It reminds us that all humanity bears the stain of sin, no matter who you are. Being a part of God's people, whether that is the Old Testament Israel or the New Testament church, we are all sinners, and we are all in need of having that sin dealt with in some way. So the death of the firstborn reminds us, it points us to other stories. I mean, again, as we read these things, there's so many connections going in different places. Because as you read this story, you immediately remember another story where a chosen son, a, a technically a firstborn son is in jeopardy. And that is when Abraham was commanded to sacrifice Isaac at Mount Moriah. And again, you had a picture of the people, in this case, Abraham and Isaac, owing God a debt that they could not bear to pay on their own. And yet God provides a sacrifice, a substitute to save Isaac's life. Okay, and so we see there's foreshadowing on foreshadowing in some ways, we could say. Abraham and Isaac foreshadow the Passover, which foreshadows future events that come in the New Testament. The Passover lamb would serve that purpose. It would be a substitute for the people. Its blood on the doorposts would signal God to pass over that house when he came to take the firstborn of each household. And so again, we see something, we see images, we see all kinds of ideas in these things. That is a picture right there, folks, of salvation by faith, okay? The idea that God would say, if you will do this thing, if you will trust me and put blood on your doorpost, which in and of itself doesn't seem like it would save you from anything, right? Um, it, 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 it seems very ceremonial. Um, it doesn't seem like it would actually save you from something, but God says, I want you to trust me in this thing. If you will trust me and obey me in this thing, then you will be saved. We have a similar picture when it comes to faith, right? I think that's part of the reason why so many people in our world have a problem with faith in general. We talked about the story of Naaman, the, the, the Syrian general in, in Sunday school this morning. It is a story where God commands him to do something very simple for his healing. And at first he balks at it because he says, you know, if you had told me to do something crazy, something uh, where I had to exert a certain amount of effort, I would have gone and done that thing for my own healing. But the fact that you're telling me to do something simple, uh, you, you balk at this, at that. Faith works that way. To say to someone, What it takes for you to be saved is to trust on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's too easy for some people. For God to say, if you want your family to be saved, you need to 
paint your doorposts and the lentil with the blood of a lamb you sacrifice. Seems like it would be too easy. And yet that's a picture of the fact that we are saved by faith. In the, in the Passover ceremony, it says there will come a point in the, in the liturgy of that ceremony when the children will say, what does this service mean? Like, what does it mean that we are celebrating this and remembering these things? And we are told to say, this is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. So, so that's the historical context, right? And again, I, you're probably familiar with that, and we could go into much greater detail uh, on all of the events of that. But what we find is that that event then becomes something that the Israelites are called to observe every year, to remember ceremonially um, every year. And so here's an incredible truth. All right. And it's something that you may not notice when you just read the Bible in a, in a, in kind of a quick fashion. But as central as the Passover was to, um, God's command and the ceremonial observance and what it meant for the salvation of the people, Israel by and large neglects the practice of the Passover for much of its history. All right. It is not practiced the way God told them to practice it. In fact, at many times in their history, it's not practiced at all. They don't do it at all. And you say, well, Ash, where do we see that in the scriptures? Well, Numbers tells us about the second observance of the Passover, right? This is the second time they've done it. It's their first year out of Egypt. And it seems to be the case that they do it in accordance with scripture. We don't have a whole lot of information in the, the individual books of the Bible, let's say the time of the wandering or the conquest of, of the promised land or the time of the judges or the time of the kings. We don't just have necessarily a ton of references at different places that of what's going on and how they're practicing it. But we do have a couple. So one of those is in reference to the story of the good king Hezekiah. All right, so King Hezekiah is a king of the, the southern kingdom of Judah. He's a good king overall. He is a king of a, a time of revival that brings people back to um, uh, to the Lord uh, after they've been sort of being unfaithful in terms of their paganism. And here's something interesting that happens. When he does that, it says Hezekiah wanted to celebrate the, the Lord's Passover. And it specifically mentions the fact that it says um, that they hadn't done it properly in a while. So much so that when the time for the Passover that year came, none of the priests were ready for it. None of them had cleansed themselves ceremonially to participate in the Passover. Okay. The, it, it just goes to show you like they weren't ready for it when it came. It would be like, I mean, this is probably a silly illustration, but it would be like a, a pastor who didn't realize that it was Easter Sunday. Like he just kind of walked in and went like, Oh, I didn't, I didn't know we were doing this today or whatever. Okay. Except. They didn't realize it. And you know what has to happen? This is a cool thing in the Bible. The Bible literally makes an allowance and it says, hey, we get that sometimes there might be a situation. Let's say maybe a close family member died right near the Passover. And because of your interaction with a dead body, you were ceremonially unclean. That's okay. We're going to make a time for you one month later where you can have like a backup Passover on 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 the 14th day of the second month. And so what happens at Hezekiah's Passover is that the whole nation has to do the backup. 
because nobody was ready for it. Okay. Which again points to the fact that as a people that just hadn't been that important to them. Okay. And it gets worse even after that. Um, or actually we get a bigger picture of how bad it was when we get to Hezekiah's great grandson, Josiah, who was also a good king. And you remember that Josiah comes. Um, he is the one who they rediscover the law after it has been lost for a generation. The wicked king Manasseh came. He was king over Israel or over Judah. Um, Manasseh's reign was marked by rampant paganism. Um, it is it is under Manasseh's reign that God basically says, "I am done with Judah. Uh, I'm bringing judgment upon them." Okay, because of Manasseh and the things that he has done. But Josiah in his reign, it says, uh, the Bible says this of Josiah, it says, before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. So Josiah is like doing what he's supposed to do. And you know what he does in the midst of this? They read the Old Testament and he says, guys, we... We're supposed to be doing this Passover thing, right? We've not been doing this in a long, long time. We need to do the Passover the right way. But look what it says. It says, no Passover like it had been kept in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet. None of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as was kept by Josiah. Okay? You understand what that means? Let me give you a time frame. That's 400 years between Samuel and Josiah. For 400 years, nobody anywhere apparently had been keeping the Passover like they were supposed to keep it, even if it's sometimes they had been doing some kind of, of Passover celebration, all right? And so we see that that even though the Passover is significant to the people of Israel, paramountly significant in some ways, they are still pretty poor at observing it and remembering it uh, and, and rehearsing it in, in their calendar each year. So what we see is that in the beginning, the, the, the observance of Passover um, is, is meant to draw attention to those historical events, right, that happened in Egypt. But what would happen is elements of the ceremony would change over the years. So obviously the first Passover was celebrated in each household, right, um, among family and close neighbors. That was the way it worked each each week or, or each year, okay? But as time progressed, Israel uh, ceased their nomadic wandering. The tabernacle is established and later on the temple is established, right? The ceremony continues to go on in homes, but there is also a important uh, pilgrimage festival that comes along too, where Israelites go to the city of Jerusalem and where there is a public observance, like an official um, priestly observance of the Passover in Jerusalem. All right. And so we see um, some of these things going on in the story in Exodus 12. We get a picture of what the ceremony is supposed to look like in terms of the family observance of it and also um, the the corporate, you could say, observance of it. Uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. And when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the house in which they eat it. 
They shall eat the flesh that, that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head and legs and inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, right? So all of those elements that we read, the sort of odd things, right? Reading it with your staff in your hand and your, in your, and your sandals on, that is all pointing back to the actual experience of the Israelites at Passover, where, um, when the, when the plague of death came by and killed all the Egyptians, the next day the Egyptians said, we're done with you, get out of town, go now. And the, and the Israelites had to leave immediately. But as, those elements of ceremony um, develop in in the in the Jewish uh, liturgical culture. Um, they become what we call now the Seder meal. All right, they become the the, the ceremonial Passover meal that they have every year uh, in Judaism. And so, all those little elements are uh, and, and some are added to it, and they each represent stuff. And so, probably some of you in here have been a part of a a Christianized Seder meal, possibly. Um, and so what we find is each one of the pieces represents something. The bitter herbs, or sometimes it's horseradish, represent the oppression of Israel. There's salt water that is uh, things are dipped in during the ceremony that represent the tears of the people. There is a nuts and apple kind of like chutney mixture stuff or whatever that represents the mortar um, that they had to make without straw. Um, and there are four goblets of wine in the ceremony. And so those are significant. We're going to come back to those in just a second. But this is this celebration, this what's called the Passover Seder, is almost certainly what Jesus was partaking of at the Last Supper. All right? So as they are progressing through the supper, though, Jesus starts doing something weird. He begins to relate certain aspects of that meal, not to the events of Passover, but to his own self and to his own life. And so as they are eating, they have the unleavened bread that we call uh, matzah. It's kind of like cracker. And as the bread is broken, Jesus says, take and eat, this is my body. Giving new significance to that bread used in the ceremony. Then to the wine, as it is offered, he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. Again, pointing towards its connection, not to the Passover, but now to him. So what's happening here? Well, the meal that is intended to remind Israel of her salvation from death and slavery is being shifted to show how Jesus is the salvation for his people from death and slavery. His body now represents the bread or the sacrificial lamb that will be offered on the altar. His blood, symbolized in the wine, will cover those who have faith in what God has commanded. And in doing so, being covered by the blood, death will pass over them. So the reality is this. We, as a congregation, we celebrate the new Passover, you could say, not each year, but each week, because we celebrate it in the form of the Lord's Supper, which has shown the fulfillment of those things.
We remember and declare, right? That's the language we use every week. We remember and declare the salvation that has been purchased for us through the death of Jesus, the Lamb of God. And so, obviously, the, the culminating, um, this is culminating the fact that Jesus is not just redefining the Passover, but he is actually doing something more. Jesus is fulfilling the Passover. He's not just shifting the meaning of it to something else, but he is accomplishing what the Passover was always pointing towards. So again, last week we talked about this idea of, of foretaste, that the, this, the festivals of the Jewish calendar are a foretaste. They are a shadow of, uh, in the feast, you see a foretaste and a shadow. But that is clearly seen, obviously, here in the Passover and how it is fulfilled in the cross. We see the foretaste and the shadow of the Passover in the reality that is the cross of Jesus. And as we look to the cross, we see even more incredible symmetry that demonstrates that it is the fulfillment of the Passover. The link between the Passover observance and the crucifixion of Jesus becomes clear to us in lots of cool little ways. Again, more ways than I even have time to talk about here and probably um, ways that I'm not even aware of that I've never even uh, been made aware of. But but several things that are obvious to us. First off, that the lamb that is offered has to be spotless. It has to be without defect. We read that in Exodus chapter 11. This event um, in the Passover celebration, they would actually find a lamb, right? And they would find a lamb that was without defect. And you know what they would do? It's, it's really interesting. We're told in, in, in the Old Testament that on the 10th day, so the 14th day of the second month, of the first month, is when Passover is. But on the 10th day is when that lamb would be chosen and presented to the people. All right. And what we find is when we look at the biblical story, the 10th day is the day of Jesus triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. Okay. And so this is what the, 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 in, the incredible fact of that, that story is because we talked about it last and we talked about how the people of Israel were looking on Jesus saying, our King has come. And we talked about the fact that we, we wanted that to be true, but we knew it couldn't be. But what we find in this story is that Jesus' triumphal entry was not the choosing of the king. The the triumphal entry was the choosing of the lamb. It was the people saying, this will be the lamb that we sacrifice at Passover. Now, they didn't realize that. But that what was going on in the symbolism of the day. And guess what? Once the lamb was chosen, it was put on inspection for four days until the Passover because there was a rigorous process of inspection that had to happen to determine that that lamb was actually spotless and worthy of being the Passover lamb. So for the next four days before the sacrifice, the lamb would be kept separate. He would be singled out, inspected by various people to see if there were any kinds of defects. And what do we see when we come to the gospel accounts? As we look at Jesus' last week of his life, the days leading up to his crucifixion, multiple levels of investigation to see if Jesus really is righteous, to see if he really is who he says he is. The scribes and the elders and the priests try to trap him. They try to demonstrate his sinfulness in some way or his complicity with the Roman Empire. Um, But instead, 
their unrighteousness is demonstrated. Their lack of authority is revealed. And Jesus is demonstrated to be exactly who he says he is. But it keeps on going. When we get to the night before Jesus' crucifixion, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then he, you remember the story, he is arrested in the middle of the night, and what happens? He is taken before various trials, various courtrooms, essentially, to see if he really is without sin. And so, first, he's taken before the scribes and the elders and the priests, the Sanhedrin, the, the religious re, uh, leadership of Israel. But they don't find anything. At least nothing that's real. They, 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 they trump up charges and they, and they try to make these things stick to them, to him, but none of them are true. They realize they have no authority to kill Jesus. So what do they do? They take him before Pilate, the governor, the Roman governor in Judea. But guess what? He finds nothing against Jesus. And to try to get out of the, the, trying to make people mad in that situation, he realizes Jesus is from Galilee and Herod happens to be in town and Galilee is Herod's problem. So he sends him to King Herod, who is the Jewish, um, you know, vassal king of, of the Roman Empire. And Herod sees him and also recognizes this man's done nothing wrong. And I'm not interested in getting into this problem and being a part of it. So he sends him back to Pilate. Each accuser has inquiries, trying to find some sin or crime that they can stick to Jesus, but there is nothing. And so we find in God, the Matthew's gospel, when he comes back to Pilate the second time, Pilate says this to the crowds. He says, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. After examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. That's the verdict. The verdict is this is the spotless lamb. All right. He has been tried by every court that was legitimate and illegitimate. And they have found nothing to demonstrate that he is anything but the spotless lamb that he claims to be. And yet Jesus is condemned despite his innocence. He is handed over for execution. And again, the timing of the events is incredible. Because what we find is this. Part of the observance of the Passover, taking that chosen lamb, that lamb would be taken to the temple compound, taken to the altar at around 9 a.m. in the morning. And he would be staked to the altar around 9 a.m. You remember we referenced this just a couple of weeks ago when we read back as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, we talked about that psalm and referencing back to the psalm where it says, talking about the binding of the sacrifice, that, that the sacrifice would be brought in and bound to the altar. We talked about how the altar had like four corners and each corner had kind of like a little hook or a horn and you would come and you would tie that animal to the altar at his, with his four legs at the four corners and keep him there. And the animal would sit and be put on display for the people till around 3 p.m. in the afternoon, at which time its throat would be slit, and the priest would, in the liturgical verbiage of the ceremony, say, it is finished at the sacrifice of the lamb. So what do we see in the story? At 9 a.m., the sacrificial lamb 
not in the temple complex, but Jesus outside the city walls is staked out. He is nailed to the cross, placed in the, in, in, in the position there at Golgotha to be displayed for the people where he hangs for six hours. And at the end of that time, around the third, the, what was the sixth hour around the 3 p.m. time frame, Jesus utters the words from the cross. It is finished. And then he gives up his spirit. Something incredibly profound happens in that moment that we recognize knowing those details is that Jesus is not only the Passover lamb, but Jesus is the high priest who sacrifices it. Jesus is the true high priest who sacrifices the lamb and says it is finished. And he is the true Passover lamb who is the one being sacrificed. Those two themes are reinforced throughout the New Testament. John the Baptist from the get-go has been saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's been talking that way about Jesus since the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says, for Christ, our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's pointing to the connection between the festival of the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread, which we will talk about next week. Hebrews chapter 7 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Right, there's that language. He is offering up himself. Jesus on the cross is both our high priest and the sacrificial lamb of the Passover. So we see all these, man, There's and there's more to it than that. Man, we could go and talk about a hundred other connections, right? A hundred other places in the Bible that, that draws attention to different um, connections between the Old Testament Passover and, and the day of the cross and Jesus' sacrifice. But what I want to do to just sort of close is just kind of maybe draw our attention to a couple of things real quick in terms of thinking, in terms of looking backwards, in terms of looking here now, and in terms of looking to the future. So one is this, just like we said a few minutes ago, as we look back, we remember the Passover, the ultimate Passover, the fulfilled Passover every single week in the Lord's Supper, right? That's part of why we do it in the same way that the Sabbath is the weekly reminder of our rest, like we talked about last week. What have we done? We have added to the weekly observance of the Sabbath. We have added to it the Passover. Why? Because the Passover is necessary for our rest. There's no way we can understand our Sabbath rest unless we also understand the fulfillment of the Passover in Jesus Christ. He is our rest because of his sacrifice, okay? And so, again, I hope the case is, because it's easy to not do this. You know what most people say when, when, when they hear that we do the Lord's Supper every week or any church that does the Lord's Supper every week? You know what the typical line is? The typical line is this. They say, well, I don't think that's a good idea. I wouldn't do the Lord's Supper every week. You want to know why? Because I feel like if you did it every week, it wouldn't be that special. 
That's what everybody says. I've heard that a hundred times, okay? But here's the deal. They can be right, right? We can do the Lord's Supper each week and have a, it just be another thing that we do. It's another part of the, the service. It's just something else that we, we do. And our, our minds and hearts are not focused on what's actually going on, what it actually means, how it looks back and remembers Jesus Christ, whose body was broken and his blood was shed for us, for our peace, for our salvation, for our redemption from slavery to sin. And so each week we look back, just as the people of Israel were called to look back at the Passover, we look back too. But just like the people of Israel, we got to be careful because it's easy for us to forget to do it right, as they did for hundreds and hundreds of years. Two, in a, in a here and now kind of kind of way of thinking about it. So here's something cool that you see in the Old Testament. Even though they didn't practice it properly, like we read, but when they do practice it properly, it is times of revival. All right? What we notice is that when the nation wants to turn back to God, it does the Passover right. It remembers what it was talking about. It remembers what is being emphasized. And I would argue this. The case is, it is exactly true for every revival that has ever happened in the history of the church. Not specifically in, in, in connection with the Lord's Supper, but what, what the Lord's Supper represents. Every single revival is a return to the realization of the centrality of Jesus Christ, of salvation by grace through faith in Christ, in his death and sacrifice alone. That is what sparks revival. Right? It is a remembering of the gospel and a renewed application of the gospel to our lives that sparks revival every single time. Okay, And so the reality is, is we practice that each week, and yet there should be something we should hope and pray that there will be something that happens in our hearts and spirits, that the, that the, that the spirit of God will move in a unique way to make the gospel fresh to the extent that it blows the flame of revival into a conflagration, all right? But it will begin with us remembering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It happened in Ezra's time as they, as they, the people came back from exile. It happened in Hezekiah's time with his, his reforms. It happened in the, the time of Josiah with the rediscovery of, of the law. Um, it, it, and it always points and is connected to the remembrance of the Passover. So when we, in our lives and hearts, turn to the Lord, something should happen, and it should give us renewed zeal and energy and, and passion for the truth of the gospel. And then one last thing, looking forward. And this is, this is a, a closing kind of um, insight and something that people a little bit disagree on and it's a little bit nebulous and, 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 but I think it's a, it's worth saying. One of the main points that Jesus makes at the Lord's Supper, he's going through giving new meaning to these elements of the Lord's Supper. And then at the end, he makes a comment and he says, um, he says, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on. Until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. All right. 
that is certainly an eschatological passage, right? That is looking ahead to the new heaven and the new earth. And Jesus says, I won't share in this with you again until that day, all right? But here's an interesting connection, all right? In the Seder meal, in the Seder meal, there are these four cups of wine. And the, the, the significance of those four cups of wine comes from Exodus chapter six. So the Jews recognize that there are four, there's technically five. And so I'm not really sure what the deal is on that, but there are four I will statements in Exodus chapter six. God promises to do something. He says, I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from your bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched hand and I will take you as my people. All right. And there's a last one too, but it's, it's a little more broad and, and all encompassing about who God is. Okay. Um, but the, the Jews in that Seder meal have given, that's, that's the connection to these four cups of, of, of wine. The first cup is called the cup of sanctification, right? I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will sanctify you. I will set you apart, okay? The third one is deliverance. I will rescue you. I will deliver you from your bondage, and I will take you out of there, okay? The third cup is the cup of redemption. He says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And then the last one is the cup of praise. So here's the deal. We don't know this for sure, but man, it seems pretty cool if it's accurate. If it is the case that Jesus, as he comes to that third cup, the cup of redemption, and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, all right? The cup that redeems you, the symbolism there, my blood is your redemption, all right? And they drink the cup. The the, the people at the table drink the cup. The last one is what's called the cup of praise or the, I will take you as my people. I will gather you in as my people. And it may be the case that Jesus then says, that cup is now to be drunk at the end of the the ceremony. But Jesus says, I will not drink the fruit of the vine again until I drink it with you anew in my father's kingdom. All right. That he pauses on the last one and he says, the ceremony, there's there's going to be a gap here people, all right? The fulfillment of this last cup, the gathering in of my people is not going to take place right now. I'm not going to drink that cup with you right now. You want me to. Again, we talk about it over and over again. You think that the that my coming is going to be the consummation of Israel. It is going to be the unification of Israel. This is the defining moment of human history, and it's going to mean Israel coming together as a nation and as people and all these things like that. And Jesus says, it does mean your redemption, or it, it can mean your redemption, but it does not mean your unification yet. It does not mean the ingathering of the people of God yet. That cup is still to come, right? We're going to talk about that. It's going to tie into other festivals, that idea. Now, again, here's, we have to be honest, is everything that I just said blatant in the text? It's not, okay? Um, the text is, is far more vague than that. But we do know about the way the Jews practiced the ceremony. And we do know some things that Jesus said. And, and, and the implications there, um, if they are right, man, they line up with exactly what we would see when we go through the rest of the New Testament. All right. And so 
we close kind of on those three points, looking backwards, a, a thinking about what could be possible in our own time, and then a looking forward to a day when these things are fulfilled in to the utmost. They've already begun in Jesus Christ, and yet they are not yet completed and consummated. So what I want to do is go to the Lord in a time of prayer. Again, uh, if you're a student of the Old Testament, if you've read a lot about the Passover, you may be thinking to yourself right now, Ash, you've left out all kinds of important connections and pieces and things like that. And the answer is you're totally right because because we could have a whole series by itself on on the Passover and talk about different things. Um, but, but I do want us to pray and think on those things that we have talked about, to remember the cross, always hold the cross as we take the Lord's Supper, but in our daily lives, to remember um, the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, to recognize that as we make that the center of our lives, that that is the, the thing that historically has fanned the flame of revival. That's what changes people's lives, the gospel, the recognition of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's what changes people's hearts and minds. That's what brings them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And finally, to look with hope to a day that is promised to us, a day that is not yet here, a day where we are not yet unified. And yet one day God will gather his people together and we will drink together that last cup in the new heaven and the new earth. Amen. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask him to impress these truths upon our hearts. Um, and that we would be closer to him and know him more truly because of it. Father God, when we come to uh, your word, when we explore the themes of the Passover and its fulfillment and the cross of Jesus Christ, God, we recognize that we are insufficient for these things, that uh, the grand picture and the glory of the things that we see in your scripture um, are, are complex beyond words, um, that we could study them for our entire lives and never plumb their depths. And so... Um, but God, we ask that in the, the few things that we have said tonight, God, that they would, uh, ring true. God, that they would, that you would implant them in our hearts. Um, God, that we would get a grander, uh, and more full vision of your goodness and providence, um, your saving plan for humanity and for each one of us as you have worked out your salvation in history through your son, Jesus Christ. God, help us to um, live in wonder of that. Um, let us give you praise um, for your goodness and glory. And in all things, um, God, help us to know and worship you uh, and walk with you in everything that we do. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
So it says we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. That's the last line of that song. Um, when we go to the book of Revelation, um, we see that there is a feast that we are heading to, right? But it's not a, it's not a Passover feast at that point. It's a wedding feast. Um, it is a feast that is um, the, the consummation of all things um, and our, uh, our, our being welcomed into the presence of, of Christ um, and being with him forevermore. And that's exactly what that song sings. Uh, man, I love that song. It's a beautiful one. Um, I'm glad we sing it as often as we do. So um, hope you have a great week. Next week is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, and so what's interesting, just as sort of a preview, is, is the three feasts of the spring festival calendar happen on three consecutive days. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is a longer event, but it starts on Saturday after the Friday of, of, of the crucifixion and, and, and then extends on. But those, those three feasts together were so uh, connected that sometimes when you read the Bible in the New Testament, you'll actually see them just refer to the whole thing as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They won't even talk about the Passover specifically because it's just part of the, the larger feast. So we're going to talk about that one next week um, and, and its um, significance and, and prophetic fulfillment in Christ. Hope you can be here. Um, again, have, have a great week. Hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.